Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. In a room this size, the differences among us are great. And we could spend a lot of time talking about those differences. A difference in how you were raised, differences in your family of origin, differences in education level, differences in how much money you make, a diversity of ethnicity, ethnicity diversity of uh, blue collar, white collar. The differences in a room this size are great. But there's one area that we have in common that not one of us can escape. There's one, there's one area that none of us are immune to. There's one area that none of us can get away from. There's one area of absolute commonness of every single person in this room. And that is failure. Every one of us has failed. Different times, different seasons. In fact, failure is a part of what it means to be human. Now, the common ground of failure we have, the question is, how do you respond to your failure? Again, we could go back into quite a large degree of diversity there. How do you respond to failure? It's actually what this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is about. The Apostle Paul writes about horrendous and horrific failure in his life. But he also writes about a beautiful gospel that gives him tremendous resource in the midst of his failure. When I say failure, I mean failure to meet up to your own expectation, but even more importantly, failure to measure up to God's standards. 
The question is, how do you respond to failure? Paul lays out failure, and he lays out a wonderful response for failure, or to failure, and that is the gospel. And I would say this morning, for all of you that are gathered, if you've got a past that you can't shake, if you've got skeletons in your closet that you can't seem to get rid of, if you've got a past that haunts you, if you've got sin in your history that continues to plague you, number one, you're not alone because the author of 1 Corinthians had that. The apostle Paul. And number two, God has a word for you this morning. Because God through Paul in this passage, defines this amazing resource that we call the gospel. He defines it, and then he's going to apply it. So first, what is the gospel? Look at verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The gospel literally means good news. Now, what's the good news about it? And to get at the good news, Paul is going to define it here in verses three to five. And he defines it by four statements. Each starts with the word that. In fact, these four statements of belief functioned as almost a creed in the early church. They hung on to these four statements as, their, as what they believed about the gospel and therefore the hope it gave them. Statement number one about the gospel Verse three, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for. That word for means substitution. That means that Jesus died as a substitute in our place. That Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary not exemplary. What do I mean by that? He died in our place as a substitute. He did not die on the cross to show us how to live a sacrificial life. The horrendous death of Jesus was done in your place, not to be an example for you. Now, how do we know this? Well, Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures are he, is he talking about? Well, at the time Paul wrote this letter, they didn't have a New Testament in writing. They had letters, some letters that were circulating, but it was all oral from the, from the apostles. The scriptures that Paul is talking about here are the Old Testament scriptures. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in and emerges out of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus says this himself in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, he's on the way to Emmaus walking next to two disciples and this is what he says to him. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? Law of Moses, prophets, Psalms. That's the entire Old Testament. Jesus says, everything written in the Old Testament about me must be fulfilled. So you say, well, then where does this substitutionary nature of Jesus death on the cross come from in the Old Testament. It's actually all throughout the Old Testament. But one of the prominent passage, passages is Isaiah 53. Just listen. Listen to these words spoken by the prophet of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah, years before Christ would go to the cross. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, you tell me how you can read a passage like that and reduce Jesus' death to an example of how we should live sacrificially. And yet we do it. You remember that social media post that I talked about about a month ago, probably? The two pictures? One was of Jesus Christ, his head, bleeding profusely with the crown of thorns around his head, right on the cross. And then the picture of a man who was frustrated with some, some bad circumstances in his life. And then the caption below said something to this effect. What are you complaining about? That's an exemplary picture of Jesus' death. You see what that says? Look how much Jesus had to go through. Look how awful his circumstances were. And look how he didn't say a word. Now you do the same. Now you don't complain when times are tough for you. Here's the problem. Jesus didn't die on the cross to show you how not to complain. He died on the cross because you do complain. You do sin. And so Jesus' death is not an example. It is substitution. He died in your place. You see, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not a how to not sin seminar. Almost like, you know, when you get a speeding ticket, you get a speeding ticket and then you go to driving school and at driving school, they teach you how to drive safer and not speed as much. Romans 6.23 does not say the wages of sin is a how to not sin seminar. No, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. And statement number one of the gospel says, Jesus Christ died that death in your place so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus died for our sins, not to show us, not to show us how not to sin. Sure, that, that rolls out in sanctification. I, this was years ago, but when I was growing up, there was this big fad of these, these bracelets that you would wear, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's the pinnacle of, hey, Jesus died and sacrificed himself, so you do the same. No, it's not WWJD, it's WDJD. What did Jesus do? He died in our place. Substitution. What is the gospel? That's number one. Christ died for, for our sins. Statement of belief number two. Look at verse four. That he was buried. Now you say, why is this such an important statement of truth about the gospel? Because in the early church, there was a heresy going around 
that said Jesus wasn't really human. He appeared to have flesh, but he was really just a spirit, almost like a hologram. So he didn't really die. And Paul makes it clear here that Jesus was buried. He was fully human with real human flesh. And he really did die. And he was really placed in a tomb. You see, if Jesus wasn't really human, if he just appeared to be human, but he wasn't really flesh, then there is no forgiveness of sins. One of the early church fathers, Gregory, he says it this way. What has not been assumed has not been healed. If Jesus didn't assume flesh, then your flesh is not healed. Your body is not healed. Your sin is not forgiven. That Jesus became fully human to redeem you in the totality of your body, soul, and spirit, he put on a real human nature. Because if he didn't, he couldn't, as Hebrews talks about, sympathize with your weaknesses. Or as Hebrews says in, in chapter 4, 15, he has been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. You understand that? Every temptation that you face is not foreign to Jesus. In every temptation, in every way that we've been tempted, he has. That means he can sympathize with your weaknesses. Think about it, when you go through something hard, when something dif difficult hits your life, sin, hardship, trial, whatever it may be, who's the first person you wanna to turn to on a human level? Somebody that gets you. Right? Somebody that understands you, somebody that can sympathize, empathize. Who do you not turn to? The person that doesn't get you. The person that's not gonna empathize, not gonna sympathize. Listen, if Jesus isn't fully human, we don't have a savior. We don't have an intercessor, somebody that intercedes for us before the Father. And we don't have someone we can turn to. Because in your sin, there's a massive distance between you and Jesus. And the beauty about him being buried, which means he's fully human, is that he sympathizes and he understands exactly what you're being tempted by, exactly what you're going through. And therefore, Hebrews 4 says, we can run to him. We can run to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Right? Statement number two, he was buried. Statement number three of belief about the gospel, verse four, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, in accordance with the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, there were allusions throughout the Old Testament about Jesus raising from the dead. You've got the book of Jonah, where Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days. You've got in, in the prophecy of Hosea, right? Hosea talks about when there was trial and hardship in Israel, he talks about the Lord reviving us, raising us up on the third day. And of course, you get to the New Testament and you've got illusions and, and pictures of Jesus' resurrection, one being Lazarus, although big difference there. When Jesus raised Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus wasn't resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated. Lazarus came back to life in the same body he died in to once again die again. 
Jesus Christ was not resuscitated. He was resurrected, which means when he came out of the grave, he rose with a new glorious body that could never be touched again by death, decay, or corruption. He was resurrected to newness of life in a new body. It's a picture of what will happen to us. And as we're gonna see in the coming weeks here in, in chapter 15, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Again, if he's not human, there's no salvation. If he wasn't raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead, there's no salvation. I, I love the way Kevin Bigelow puts it. He says, your faith rests on a dead man coming out of the grave. Your faith rests on, the, on a dead man coming out of the grave. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. Statement of belief number four. Look at verse five. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why does Paul supply all of this detail about Jesus' appearances? Well, let me, before we get to the answer, let me tell you what these, this detail means, what it shows us. Here's what it shows us. If Jesus Christ appeared to just one person at a time at different times, you could, you could make the argument that each person was hallucinating, having some crazy vision, bad pot of chili the night before, whatever it may be, okay? 500 people at one time don't hallucinate together. Don't come up with this crazy, wacky vision together. And, and Paul says most of those 500 were still alive, which means that if this was just a, a joke and somebody was making this up, plenty of those 500 would come out and say and refute it. And this letter would have never circulated and it never would have made it into the, what we call the Bible or the canon. Now, what, is this, what does this mean? Or what is this point? Is this undergirding? It's this. The Christian faith rests on an objective historical event, not the subjective vision of one man. Right? The Christian faith rests on an event that happened in history that was witnessed by many. Not the subjective vision of one man. And this is what sets Christianity apart from many of the major world religions that are founded, that rest on one man and one vision. Not so with Christianity. It rests on a historical event. It rests on a dead man coming out of the grave with much and many witnesses of it. That's the gospel defined. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. Now, what does this mean? How does Paul now apply it to the lives of the Corinthians? How does he apply it to his own life? So let's talk about application of the gospel. First application. Paul's definition of the gospel has huge implications for the power of the gospel. 
the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not rest on it being a superior philosophy when, when weighed against the other major philosophies and religions of the world. No, the, the power of the gospel, as we just saw, rests on it being tied to a historical event of a dead man coming out of the grave and being resurrected into a new body. The only time that's ever happened in the history of the world. Now, when Jesus returns the second time, lots of bodies will come out of the grave. But it's the only time it's happened. The power of the gospel rests on that historical event. Now, why is this important? Because over the years, decades, even over the last century, many churches, many communities of faith have taken the approach of, we're going to we're gonna remove the historicalness of the Christian faith. We're gonna remove the miracles of the Christian faith in order to make the gospel more palatable, more accessible. So if we just get rid of the, some of the history that's hard to square and some of the miracles, we'll, just, we'll gather more people, we'll reach more people. Listen, when you take away the history of the Christian faith, uh, for example, our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, taking away the fact that they were historical beings. That's not history, right? Or if you take away Jesus rising from the dead. No, he didn't really rise from the dead. Or you just say, we're gonna get rid of the miracles in the Bible and treat them all as allegory, including the resurrection. You strip the gospel of its power. In fact, communities of faith, churches that have done that in an effort to make it more easier to, to connect with people, those churches are declining and they're selling their buildings. Why? Because the power of the gospel is tied to a miraculous event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Imagine taking a big stone and, and throwing it out into the middle of a lake. What happens when that rock hits the lake? Big splash. But then what happens after it hits? Ripples, right? Start pushing out from that impact across the lake. Jesus' death and resurrection nearly 2,000 years ago was like that. It was an impact. It was a rock hitting the middle of a lake. And those ripples of transformation from Jesus' death and resurrection have been moving out for the past 2,000 years across continents, across generations, across peoples, lives being changed, right? If you take the rock hitting the water out, you lose the ripples, so if you take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you lose the ripples of transformation because the power of the gospel is tied to that event, to the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know what your chances would be of winning the lottery? If you played the form of the lottery where you pick six numbers out of a pool of 49 numbers, Right? So if you play the lottery where you pick six out of a pool of 49, do you know what your chances are of winning? One in 14 million. Now, what if I told you, let's just assume it was true. If I told you, hey, if you play the lottery, you'll actually have a one in 10 chance, a 10% chance, one in 10 of winning the lottery. Would you play? Probably so. I mean, one in 14 million, that's a waste. One in 10, hey, 
there's a pretty good chance there. Listen, if there's even a one in 10 chance that Jesus Christ walked out of that grave in a new glorious body that cannot be touched by death or corruption ever again, and he's alive today, don't you think it's worth investigating? And I'm, and I'm speaking to those of you here who are, are outside of Christ, maybe investigate you know, just what's going on here with Christianity. Listen, if Jesus Christ rose and he's alive today, then it is worth your time digging in, investigating the scriptures, asking God to reveal the truth to you. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, which he did, and he's alive today, then everything changes. It has implications for your life. Not just your life now, but your life after death. The power of the gospel is tied to the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. Second application of the gospel, the importance of ongoing belief. Look at verse one. Paul says the Corinthians received the gospel that he preached to them. Verse 11, Paul preached and they believed. So what's that saying is there was a first time that these Corinthians believed the gospel. No different than some of you at the New Year's conference in Raleigh. For the first time, believe the gospel and you've experienced the joy that comes with that. Of for the first time realizing that Jesus Christ died for you and took away your sins, right? There's a first time where you receive the gospel, but note what Paul says here. Into verse one and verse two, the gospel which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. By which you are being saved. Now this, is, that, that, this can be troubling, maybe confusing for some of you because we think, listen, you believe on Jesus and you're saved. Past tense, one time. Salvation's not a process. We're not being... Well, listen, conversion, faith and repentance, that, that's, there's a one-time first reception of the gospel. Justification, one-time act. When you believe for the first time, Jesus takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. That's one time. But the scriptures speak of salvation in this sense. You were saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved, right? And all that comes, I love the way Anthony Thistleton says it this way. Christians are like those who have been saved from drowning or from shipwreck, but who are still traveling in the lifeboat to the harbor and dry land. I've counseled a number of people who have come to me with doubts about their salvation or real problems with assurance of salvation. And they will go back and say, but Keith, I... When I was 21, when I was 20 or, or 10 years ago, I, 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 I responded to the gospel. I prayed to receive Christ, whatever it may be. And I'll always say to them, you know, the testimonies are great. They are, they're powerful. You look back at God's faithfulness in your life, that's powerful. But I'll always say to them, that's, that's great and that's powerful. But what do you believe today? What do you believe today when you wake up? That believing the gospel is not a one-time event back when I got saved. Believing the gospel is an every morning thing. I, I wake up in the morning believing this truth, that my sin today 
has already been paid for and is covered by Jesus. We believe the gospel ongoing over and over. See, the ground of your assurance is not tied to a conversion experience. That's powerful. The ground of your assurance is tied to the historical event first, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then to your belief that ties you to all the benefits that come from what Jesus did on the cross, right? Your assurance is not tied to how perfectly you're living. Right? I mean, think about the, the letter right here. The first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians, what is Paul doing? I mean, he lays them out. You failed here, you failed there, you failed there, you've got sin here. I mean, he's hard on them for 14 chapters and then what does he do in chapter 15? But let me, remember, let me remind you of the gospel you believed and received and the gospel that you're standing in today that you still believe, right? There's great comfort from the gospel. The Corinthians are believing, ongoing. And then to the third application of the gospel, grace changes everything. And this is where we see Paul applying the gospel to his own life. Look at verse eight. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, what does Paul mean by being untimely born? Well, Galatians chapter one says that God had appointed Paul as an apostle from his mother's womb. Clearly, that appointment got frustrated while Paul persecuted the church, violently persecuted the church. It got delayed until his conversion. It got delayed. His, his rebirth was abnormal, right? The other apostles or the other disciples, Jesus appeared to them right after his resurrection. Jesus didn't appear to Paul until years after Jesus had ascended. So all Paul is saying is, I, my, my rebirth is just abnormal. And not only that, I spent a long time persecuting the church of God. Now, do you understand what that means? Before Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he was in the business of hunting down Christians to either kill them or put them in prison. That's what he did for a long time. So it makes sense when Paul says in verse nine, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Paul could not erase the memory of the crimes he committed against God. So you say, how did he move forward? How did he move forward out of his failure and his horrific past? How did he move forward and write many of the letters that we read in the Bible today? Look at verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Grace changed Paul. It changed the way he labored. You know, Paul was always a hard worker. He says it here, I worked harder than the other apostles. You know, Paul was always a hard worker. In fact, you read his resume in Philippians 3, before Christ got hold of him, he had an impressive resume. He was a hard worker. But after Jesus 
got hold of him and changed him. The way he worked changed. Augustine says it this way. He was an early church father. He said this, Paul, this is after Jesus had gotten hold of him, Paul did not labor in order to receive grace, but received grace in order that he might labor. Let me say that again. Paul did not labor in order to receive grace or to earn it or to try to get it. Paul received grace in order that he might labor. Now, what is this grace that Paul's talking about? Let me take you back up to verse four. Look back up at verse four. It says that he was buried, that he was raised. Two different verb tenses are used there, and this is absolutely critical. So if you have fallen asleep at this point, please wake up. You've got to hear this. It's amazing. Was buried is in the aorist tense. That means it's a verb tense in Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament is written in. It's a verb tense that describes a one-time completed past event. He was buried. That he was raised. Was raised is in the perfect verb tense. And that means a, a completed past event that has ongoing consequences. In fact, the emphasis in the perfect verb tense is the present state of affairs that flows out of a past event. You say, how could Paul move on? How could he get over his past failures? His horrific persecution of the church of God. Those lives he ruined. How did he get past that? Here it is. Because Paul understood that his sin, his shame, his guilt, his failures were buried with Jesus Christ. One time completed past event. And that Paul's resurrection life, the new life he had in Christ, was unfolding every day before him. You realize that if you are in Jesus Christ, not only have your past sins been buried, not only have the present sins, you, the ones you committed this morning that you're not even aware of when you came to church and your thoughts have been buried, but your future sins have been buried. You realize that? Buried one time. Oh, but the resurrection life we have in Jesus, raised to new life in Christ, is unfolding before us every day that we wake up. And the reason that you can move forward from your past sin, your past shame, your past failure, maybe you feel like you wasted so many years of your life. You might say, I spent 10, 20 years wasting my life. No, God's plan is perfect. And your past sin and shame will only enhance the glory of Jesus. And your past sin and shame can only enhance the grace that you have in Jesus. Your sins are buried. It's behind you. If you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, it's a classic. It's so good. It's a while back. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it. It's a good movie. It's a story about Andy. He's a banker. He gets sentenced to life in prison for double murder that he claims, just claims his innocence from. And there's this great line 
while he's in prison. Classic quote. He says this, get busy living or get busy dying. Here's the gospel. Jesus took care of the dying for you. He buried your sin. He buried your shame. He buried your failures. He buried the decades of your life that you feel like you wasted. He buried it. And Jesus says to you, because after he buried it, three days later, he got up out of the grave and he walked out in a brand new body that could never be touched by death, corruption, ever sin ever again. He was sinless in his first life on this earth or his life on this earth. Jesus is sinless. But that body that he rose out of the grave with, never to be touched by death and corruption again. And by grace, he unites you to himself. He says, your sins have been buried. Your past has been buried. Now get busy living. Get busy living for me. Get busy living for my glory. Because your past is behind you. And guess what? I'm gonna use all your horrendous sin and shame and brokenness in the past to enhance the grace you have in me and to enhance my glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for this very simple and clear explanation of the gospel you give us right here. That Christ died for our sins in our place as substitute. That he was buried, that he really did die that he really is human, fully human, not just appearing human, and therefore a great savior and one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, that he was raised. Jesus, that you rose out of that grave with a new body and to bring a new world and your new kingdom, and that he appeared. That our faith and the Christian faith, Father, we believe rests on that historical event, not some subjective experience of one man. Now, Father, I pray for the many gathered here today that have a, a, a horrendous past or maybe have skeletons in the closet or have things that are in their past that just haunt them. Father, would you release them from that? That they would see that that's been buried and that they could get on with living. And Father, I pray for all of us collectively, we all have a past that we wouldn't hide it, that we wouldn't be ashamed of it, that we would see it all part of your plan and that you would use our past and use our failures to greater enhance your glory and the grace you've shown us in Jesus. And Father, I pray for those this morning that are here that have never received the gospel as the Corinthians did that first time, that maybe have never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you by your Holy Spirit would draw them to yourself even right now. That they may right now, in this prayer, in this time, for the first time say, Jesus, I believe. And I surrender my life to you. Father, as we close in worship, would we not just sing words to a song? Would you help us to sing, to sing loudly and with passion and with gratitude in our hearts? to this beautiful gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. 
We pray this all in his name. Amen.